Well, today, as I said, we're going to begin a look at one of the Bible's best-known characters and heroes, that's Samson. And that will bring us face-to-face with a subject that I believe is just so relevant to the church of today, but sadly is too often ignored, and that is the subject of holiness. And let me just share with you a, a quote that, that some time ago I, I found in the Observer's sayings of the week, their sayings of the week, and it's a quote that makes me both laugh and cry. And this is what Judith Young, a spokeswoman for Hodder and Stoughton, one of the main Bible publishers, is reported as saying, it's just called the Bible now. We drop the word holy to give it a more mass market appeal. But sadly, I think that sums up pretty well where so many in the church today are in relation to this area of the Bible's teaching, and particularly in relation to the dimension of holiness, which is about separation. Separation from sin, separation from the world, so that we can truly be dedicated, consecrated to, and so then used in the service of God. You see, there's a lot of confusion about just what the Bible teaches in this area. And because of that, because at times rather than holding together all that the Bible teaches, instead different strands, different emphasis of teaching have at times become dominant. Well, so there have been different trends, different attitudes towards holiness and particularly towards separation that you can discernibly see and pick out from within the history of the church. Now, as I say all this, I hope I'm not sounding superior and kind of condescending here because I certainly don't feel that way. It's, for me, been a pretty painful journey to arrive at whatever level of understanding I would claim to have now. And I I recognize that what the Bible teaches here isn't easy to hold together, that it isn't easy at times to find a clear and consistent way through. No, because the same Bible that teaches 1 John 2.15 not to love the world or anything in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James 4 verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that fellowship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to become a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And yet, At the same time, the same Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he calls us to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. Matthew 5, 13 and 14. But you see, salt only does its job when it gets out of the salt cellar. Light is at its most helpful when it shines right in the darkness. So how do we then reconcile these two different strands of teaching? Well, you see, because it is, as we've said, so difficult, many Christians usually don't really try to. Instead, they choose to go either one way or the other. So then in the past, go back 30 years or so and keep going, the dominant view, the accepted view in the evangelical church in this country was that a Christian should be separate. 
That that's what matters. Separate from sin, separate from the world. And it sounds great and it sounds biblical, except that it wasn't only things that the Bible, black and white, said no to that came into this. Rather, things that some Christians might have found dangerous or decided were dangerous. Gray areas where there was no direct biblical teaching were also written off as taboo for everybody. Things that a Christian just shouldn't do, places they just shouldn't go to. Leading to an unwritten set of evangelical rules and regulations of things you couldn't do. Of places you should not go to. And not only that, but non-Christians, they were viewed with suspicion as well. For you see, the fear was that they would draw you back into the world. So then you avoided, if you possibly could, mixing with non-Christians socially, making friends of them. You could work with them, even in a sense, care for them and love them, but you couldn't get really friendly with them. You couldn't get too close. The end result of this, though, was isolation. An isolated, ghetto-minded kind of church where the salt was kept firmly in the salt cellar, spread around maybe a little bit evangelistic missions, which though very few non-Christians came to because we didn't know many, we could invite. And where our light shone or our light shines brightly, only in our small corner. And certainly too often seems to fail to be what it should be. That light set on a stand that shines out before men. However, in recent years, many Christians, maybe more particularly younger Christians, they have reacted against this. And they've decided that they are going to go out into the world. And often with the intention of being salt and light. Too often though, that isn't what happens. No, for rather than them transforming the world, they instead have conformed to it. Yes, they have assimilated. They've taken on board almost wholesale the lifestyles and values and priorities of an unbelieving world. And, and if you don't, believe this is so, then I just ask you, as I ask myself, what is there that is different about my life because I am a Christian? I mean, besides going to church, what is there about my life that makes me and marks me out as different from friends, from neighbours, from workmates? You see, in order to rightly get away from isolation, too often we've sadly, in fact I'd say we've dangerously lost. At the same time, we've lost our separation entirely, an important biblical dimension to holiness. So you see, like with Hodder and Stoughton, with the Bible, we've taken the holiness out of our Christianity. So how then can we get the balance right? How can we get that balance that the Bible seems to say we should aim for? Of being in the world, yet separated from it. Of being involved in the world, and yet not conformed to it. Well, you see, that's where Samson comes in. For his life, mistakes and all, 
have vitally important things to teach us about what it means to be holy, particularly about separation, while at the same time still being right in at the heart of ministry to a sinful world. So let's see then what we can learn just from looking at Samson's life, beginning by looking, first of all, at God's time. And that is the context into which God here brought Samson center stage. And this is found in in verse 1 of Judges 13. We read, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there are two important things touched on here in this verse that, that I believe it's important we take note of. First of all, the Philistines. If you see, this is the first time that the Philistines get a major mention in the book of Judges. They did figure very briefly in Judges 3.31, but this is the first time that they appear in Judges as Israel's major enemy. Now, you see, we could talk a lot about the Philistines, about their background and their history, but let's instead focus on what's actually most important and relevant for us about them, and that is their methods. For you see, the the Philistines, they had a great technological advantage in relation to all the other nations that lived around them. In that they had learned to produce and they then controlled the distribution of iron. And you can read all about this in 1 Samuel 13, 19 to 21. Now you see, what this meant was that with their iron weapons and chariots was that they could simply have overwhelmed Israel. They could have quickly, physically conquered them, as a number of their other enemies at different times through their history actually did. But the Philistines didn't do that. They didn't choose the costly route of direct, head-on attack. No, instead, what they did was they chose to conquer Israel by trade and by intermarriage. So then if the, if the Israelites wanted to buy a, a pot or a pan or a plow or whatever, then they had to go to the Philistines to get one. And if they wanted a husband or a wife for one of, the, for one of their children, then the Philistines had no objection to offering theirs. You see, the Philistines didn't charge at the Israelite armies. No, they infiltrated the lives of the Israelite people. They didn't conquer them by force of arms, no, rather subtly, by the use of the material, by the use of the physical, they culturally and spiritually seduced them. Well, the other important thing I believe we need to take note of here is also the apathy of Israel. And that's highlighted here, not by what's said, but by what's not said. Because at every other point in the book of Judges, whenever Israel have turned from God and as a result of that have fallen back into bondage of one kind or another, then they've always reached a point where as a nation they've repented. And they've cried out to God for a deliverer, cried out to him for another judge who would set them free. This never happened with the Philistines and with the bondage they put God's people in. No. Because, you see, 
the people of God were too comfortable. There was no war, so trade was going well materially. Things had never been better. Or they were losing their identity. They were slowly but subtly being assimilated into the Philistine way of life. They were losing their values. They were losing their distinctiveness. And above all, they were losing their God and their relationship with God. But they were so comfortable that the people of Israel did not see what was really going on within them and around them. And so they did not cry out to the Lord. I want to ask you, aren't the parallels between this and our situation today, aren't they just so clear? For as with the Philistines, the world around us isn't yet attacking us outright isn't yet blatantly and overtly persecuting us. No, it still is seducing us. It's buying us off. It's making us comfortable and affluent. It's filling our life with pleasure in the things of this world. But at the same time, are we losing our distinctiveness, our holiness as God's people? And you see, because of that, because we're not holy, because of that, we're losing out on the power. We're losing out on the living presence of a holy God. For we live in a country where more and more sin is being enshrined into the fabric of our national life. It's being condoned, and more than that, it's actually becoming part of official government policy. But do we really speak out against it? Do we take a stand? Are we? And we live at a time also when the hurting victims of sin's destructive power have never been more plentiful. But are we really doing anything effective for them? You see, you like power. We lack life and we lack love and compassion because we have been compromised and bought and seduced by the world. And we're not crying out to God as we should. We're far from God, but we're not crying out. We're not repenting as we should. You know, people sometimes seem to think that persecuted Christians are in the worst Situation of all. And of course, in a sense, physically, they are. But spiritually, and more importantly, that's actually not the case. Because persecution makes the Christian turn to God and how God then blesses, even in the midst of persecution. I want to say to you that it's the Christian who's been seduced by the world, who's in the worst place because he or she usually doesn't know and maybe doesn't even care about what's happening that's the worst place of all to be that though was the time in which into which the lord introduced samson do you think there might be lessons in his life for us i tell you i certainly do let's move on then to look next Moving on from God's time to look at God's man. To look at Samson, the man. 
And what I believe above all stands out about Samson is that as this was a rather unusual situation for the people of God to find themselves in, but so because of that, there are a number of unusual, unique factors about Samson's life. First, the fact that he had a, a unique birth. Now, we could go into, again, all sorts of details about his birth, but the all-important thing is this angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, who to deal with any doubts in Samson's parents' minds, who twice comes to announce his birth. Now, I want to say clearly, I believe there is a distinction between an angel of the Lord and what we have here, the angel of the Lord. For an angel is a created being sent by God on a particular mission. The angel, though, is none other than God himself appearing to men to communicate his will. And I say this, I would say this for three reasons. First, because of what the the angel said. There in verse 18, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Actually, a better translation of that would be, it is wonderful. My name is wonderful. And what matters here is that, as he says this, the angel is actually going beyond the saying that he has a wonderful name. Because, as we know, for the Jews, a person's name was tied up with their character. A person's name was a pointer, an indicator to the kind of person they actually were. So you see, when the angel says that his name is wonderful, he's not just saying that, he's saying that he is wonderful. And of course, as he says this, he's taking to himself a name that later in prophecy is actually given to the Savior by Isaiah in Isaiah 9 verse 6. Wonderful counselor. And it's not only what the angel said, it's also what the angel did that points to his identity, to who he is. For he did wonders, wonders that belong to the Lord alone. He disappeared into the flame of the altar to confirm who he is. And finally, the response that, that this provoked underlined all this. Certainly Manoah and his wife were in no doubts about who this was. Verse 22. We are doomed to die. We have seen God. So this angel then was none other than God in the flesh. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ coming to announce Samson's birth. Now as an appearance of this kind occurs very rarely in the Old Testament. Well then this alone I think, without anything else, tells us that the Lord was doing something very special. Samson. He's doing something that he wants his people to take note of. However, not only was Samson's birth unique, no, he also had a unique lifestyle. It says in verse 7, the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Now, the background in detail to what it actually means to be a Nazarite, you'll find in number 6. But that word itself, Nazarite, literally means to set apart. It literally means to separate. And what this was, this was a lifestyle following a vow that just screamed out in every part of it, separation. All of the different symbolism 
involved. The not drinking wine, the command not to cut their hair. All of this was designed to mark out that a man was separated for, devoted to, consecrated absolutely to the Lord. But you see, what made Samson different? What made Samson here unique is that usually being a Nazarite was something temporary and something voluntary. Being a Nazarite was a lifestyle chosen by someone of their own will for a period as a token of commitment to God. Yet for Samson, this was a lifetime commitment commanded by the Lord. So you see, the Lord was saying something, wasn't he, to his people here? He was speaking to them very clearly through the illustration of Samson's life. This life that he commanded to be holy and set apart. He was saying something to them, wasn't he? About just what the root of their problem was and about just what had to happen before they as a nation could get right with him. Well, let's just finish by looking at that. At just what the Lord wants to teach us today through Samson about holiness, about its importance, about what it really means to be separate. Let's finish now by looking at God's purpose. And the first thing that that I believe the example of Samson makes clear, the first thing is that strength comes through separation. Strength comes through separation. For this was the secret of Samson's great physical strength. And of course, this was a a physical picture given to Israel to open their eyes to the fact, to the truth, that they could only be strong again as a nation, that they could only be spiritually strong, that key to all other strengths, the greatest of all strengths. They could only be this if they separated themselves for the Lord. And you know, the fact that towards the end of his life, Samson loses his strength when his hair's cut, this isn't something semi-magical. Well, the point of that is that at that particular stage in Samson's life, this was the last remaining symbol of his separateness to God. So when that goes, when his separate finally and completely goes, so his strength given by God goes to The second thing I think we need to learn from God's purposes here is that Samson misunderstood them. Samson misunderstood separation. He misunderstood holiness. He misunderstood what God was doing in him and through him. And this is what's key, I think, and what's really important for us to grasp today, if nothing else. For you see, the the whole thing about Samson's vow. The whole thing about Samson's life was that it was supposed to be about separation for. It was separation for the Lord, to the Lord, rather than separation from certain things. The separation from certain things, that was supposed to be the minor point. That was supposed to be the symbol of Samson's greater separation. They were intended to point him and point Israel in that direction. But you see, Samson never seems to have grasped that. He never seems to have got a hold of that. And so like for many Christians, maybe more so in the past, but still today, 
So for Samson, his separation was a negative thing. For him, it was just those few things, those few rules that he had to live by. But actually, in his heart, Samson was never really separate to God. Samson was never really, in his heart, holy to God. The Lord was never really Lord of Samson's life. Because if he had been, then I'm sure there were many things that Samson did that he would not have done and other things that he would have done. Because if you, if you take away Samson's Nazarite vow, if you take that out of his life, then much of the rest of his life seems to have been an immoral, ill-disciplined mess that eventually led to his downfall. That, though, is the secret of separation. That's the secret of biblical separation, the separation that's at the heart of true holiness. That it is, first, separation for the Lord. It is, first, separation of the heart before it's separation from certain things. You see, that's the secret, that if we learn it, will keep us from the twin evils of being isolated from the world are conformed to the world. And that is how we can manage to do what the Bible commands us to do, as we hold that together, that we can do what the Bible commands us to do, to be in the world and yet not to be of the world. But how do we do it? How in practical terms do we get this kind of separation of the heart and mind and spirit? How do we do it practically? Well, I believe... Jesus in John 17, 15, 17 has not surprisingly some very relevant things to say. For there Jesus says to his disciples as he's ready to part them, he says, pray unto the Father. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. That is Make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. You see, being separate and remaining separate, being truly holy, is about first making Jesus Lord of your life in every area, in every way. And then it's about following from that, being a man or a woman of the word, a man or a woman of prayer, about being someone who reads the word, who looks to God to speak to them through the word, and who comes to God in prayer. Practically then, what it means is so every day, living with the Lord as Lord, living strong in the Lord, being a person who then asks, Lord, where do you want me to go? Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, how can I minister for you in this world without being seduced by it? That kind of Christian who's truly committed to God but ready to go out into the world well aware of its dangers and temptations but seeking to live with Jesus as Lord, that kind of Christian, I believe, is a biblically separate, biblically holy Christian. But I have to say, I fear there are not that many Christians 
like that today. Nor rather like the Israelites in Samson's time. Too many have been seduced by the world. You see, we think we can just follow our own desires. That we can just do what we want. And that that in some way will automatically be pleasing to God. Too often, that's just not so. Rather, what that is, is out and out worldliness. And what we need to learn to do is ask the right questions of the things that we do, the places we go, the decisions that we make. And we start by asking, are you Lord of this? And then we ask, in this world, am I being light for you? Am I being salt for you? Am I being an influence for you? Or is it me that's being influenced? Is it me that's being won? Won by this world. So we need to learn to pray that prayer at every point in our lives. Lord, sanctify me. Make me holy by the truth. Your word is truth. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for just the lessons we can learn from Samson's life, that spiritual strength comes from holiness and that true holiness has at its heart a separation, but that separation is fundamentally a separation of the heart. It's about living with you as Lord and then seeking to apply that and to live that out in every single part of our life, seeking to to live that out in the decisions that we make, in the way that we live, the places that we go. Father, it's a challenge, and it's one that we can only do in the power of your Spirit. Lord, give us hearts and minds that seek you. Give us a readiness to read your word and be obedient to you. Give us a desire to seek your mind in prayer. We ask this now in Jesus' name.